Hello and welcome to Philosophical Tendencies. We are two humble gentlemen trying our best to understand the universe one question at a time. Uh, my name's Tom. And my name's Mark. And this week we are discussing the question, what will the world be like in a hundred years? So I think we're tackling this from the point of view of re realistically best case, worst case scenarios. What, Where do we think society is headed? Where do we think we're going with this? And I think we we agreed because once we kind of started this topic that it's so huge. <laughs> Where do we focus for the next 25 minutes? So we've we've picked out, we've cherry picked after a little bit of discussion, which we try not to do too much of, but that we're going to focus mostly on food in the next hundred years, where we're going to be, environment, climate, politics, and then tech slash AI, because I think a lot of what we're going to talk about will probably delve into AI. So um, Mark, uh, do you want to start us off? Um, what will the world be like in a hundred years in terms of what we're eating? What do you think? Well, well, what? Well, of course, I mean, it all divides into is it a utopian world or a more utopian world or is it more of a dystopian world? So I'll start with what I think a like sort of utopian sort of world would look like. I okay. suppose I, I mean, I imagine like in a, in a, in a better world, we're probably going to be eating more, ve be, be more vegan. It is better for the environment. Maybe lab grown meat. I mean, I would eat a burger if it was grown in a lab. I mean, I, I don't really see a problem with that. I think animal welfare is important. In fact, you're see we're seeing a real move towards more countries recognising the welfare of animals and their intelligence and how cruel mm -hmm. the farming system is for raising these animals for slaughter, battery farms for chickens and you know pigs that are chewing on themselves because they're so stressed and all of this so i think in a in a best world we're more vegan plants uh meats grown in labs maybe hydroponics so we can grow more food in a smaller amount of space which yeah. means there's more nature that we can more more of the world we can leave to nature and that's a better world for everybody um you know cows roving the, the forests and things like that. That's a very sort of utopian. I mean, there's probably going to be about 11 to 12 billion people on the planet in 100 years' time. We might be past the peak of population. Population may be globally declining. Mm -hmm. They do sort of suggest that that might actually happen. We might not just continually grow bigger, have a bigger and bigger population. We might yeah, actually I think, plateau. I think to interject there a second, I'm sure I've read something not too long ago about that we are headed we are we are still growing obviously as a population yeah, the global population but we are there is there are quite a lot of estimates that seem to think that we will plateau like you say or possibly even plateau and then bounce back a little bit so i think what what, what was the number you said there around i said 11.5 to 12 billion I okay i was thinking was in my of... head 10 billion or something like that so we're in the same yeah. kind of ballpark but um yeah from what i've read uh, yeah i can't remember how long or where i read it but uh, but yeah, still, that's a lot of people to feed. But I think just uh, utopian is nice. I think let's start since the beginning of it's our first one in 2023. Let's start nice and positive with our utopia. Um, yeah. But I will add in that I think it won't be just the pure goodness of humans that will make it push in that direction. I do agree with you. I do think we are going to see either a lot more lab grown meat as it becomes cheaper. 
and people become more uh, it becomes more accepted things like insects it's already used they're already used as a uh, as a kind of protein source in in some parts of the world it's just in the western world it's not used at all really because people can't get over it i've i've eaten crickets i've eaten maggots i've eaten tarantulas all in uh, southeast asia all quite delicious actually it's no different from eating prawns or lobsters if we it's could all be like you if we could all be like you if you get over it then... i don't know i mean i i put the protein from insects in a slightly more dystopian world i guess oh, really? i mean i sort of feel like if it if it's if it's our only option or we need to get protein we're gonna okay. start eating insects sort of harvest it. it just feels a little it's a bit it's a bit grim and i suspect for a lot of people it's a bit of a grim idea like rather than a, a nice burger you're gonna have a cricket burger i think some people might be opposed well you say you say that but then you know we're quite like you say about morality we're quite comfortable with the idea in the western or we just ignore it more than anything we're not comfortable with it but we just we just don't think about where all the meat is coming from and what's happening to all these animals and you know, especially if you go across the pond to America, factory farming is absolutely rife there. You know, the uh, free free range animals are, are kind of the rarity. Um, in some ways, you know, the UK and Europe we're we're slightly better in that. You know, we've got more free range, but you know, only, we're only give, give it time and and enough profits, and I'm sure we'll head uh, toward more towards the American way. But then we're so yeah. happy and comfortable with that. Then could it just become that? We just get comfortable. We eat insect burgers. We don't call them that anymore. Just like the uh, the French changed the name. Uh, no, sorry, it wasn't changed the name. The It was the aristocracy, wasn't it, in the UK, who we stopped calling it cow, and we started calling it uh, beef uh, from the French. Was it buff? But I can't quite remember now. But to yeah. disassociate a little bit that it's this different thing. Um, could could yeah. we start calling it, I don't know, well, I can't think of any good word really, other than we'd call it something related. French. We'd call it something <laughs> French. Yeah, it was... I mean, you know, yes, no, very possibly. I, I, I guess I sort of, and they said, I have eaten these things. And I think they're yeah. they're perfectly fine. But I know I tell a lot of people, you know, people go, oh, "What's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten?" A guy, I've eaten tarantula, and everyone goes, "Oh, that's disgusting. Why would you do that? Oh, why?" And I'm like, "Well, it's protein. It was an interesting opportunity." Um, and again, don't and, look it till you've tried it. Well, if they've exactly. not tried it, then how do they know it's disgusting? But yeah, but I feel like a lot of people would would struggle with that mentally. But mm. if it's the only option, you know, like it, it can't be any any more disgusting than a than a certain fast food restaurant that just grinds up uh, poultry and deep fries them, <laughs> and people are quite happy to to have a box of twenty of those. So. Um, yes, that is that is that is true. That is true. Just basically squeeze chicken bits. Yeah. Okay. So utopia, utopia. You think we might be heading more towards uh, veganism? So dystopia. You're thinking possibly. I don't even think it's that dystopian. I think it's just efficient. It's far more efficient to farm insects. But anyway, going it, back it to is, the. Sorry, go on. It's it is. I mean, like I I remember watching a program on Channel Four actually, where what they did was. They had a lot of bird poo that they used insects to eat the bird poo, and then they feed fed the insects to chickens, and then that was just a, a, a cycle of of waste and to keep everybody happy. And I was like, I suppose that that might end up being also a, a, an option, a slightly less dystopian option. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I think something that could happen, and it's d- d- depressing to think of, and it kind of moves yeah. in towards the climate question, is, yeah. I mean, we could start to see cr- certain big crops fail. Um, mm. They they do say things like beer. We, we, we might not be able to make beer anymore because hobs will become too difficult to grow. And wow. that is, you know, like a world without beer is not a world worth living in, in my opinion. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, that's sort of my, when I go dystopian, I start to think, you know, like there'll be less and less variety of food. I mean, we already have a fairly limited variety of food that we actually eat. When you think of the number of plants that are edible on the planet, the numbers that we actually eat are actually quite small. Yeah. Do you know what? But, I think yeah. I think you've just stumbled across the real tactic that we should be using to stop climate change. Let's stop talking about all the all the fantastic animals we're going to lose and nature and the these huge degree rises that we're going to see over the next hundred years and let's just start saying you will not have any more beer and suddenly you'll see masses of people in protest uh, extinction rebellion are suddenly seeing uh, numbers like they've never seen before uh, governments will make huge turnarounds because um, <clears throat> people do love their luxuries um, connected to beer because beer has a lot of sugar in it i was thinking because uh, i was trying to like yourself split it into utopian versus dystopian and my dystopian i was thinking that because we, we're all addicted to sugar it's it's the drug that has just been put into absolutely everything and and anyone who talks about oh free choice i, I should be able to decide whether or not um we have sugary things or you know high calorific things and so on well that's the equivalent of just putting someone who's addicted to heroin and say for every day you know you lay out their meals and then you put a needle at the end of your table and go, your choice, whatever you want, whatever you want. And here's an addict would obviously always pick the needle. And it's the same thing with sugar. Like we are, we have now addicted as a, as a global society, almost, or nearly almost as a global society, certainly as a Western society uh, to sugar. I'm thinking profits. A lot of what we're going to talk about, I think behind the scenes, what will happen in the next hundred years, um, <clears throat> unless there's some huge shift in the way economics and the world works, it's going to yeah. be profit driven. So I oh, was yeah. thinking things like, yep, I can see veganism taking off um, as it becomes more expensive to rear cattle and uh, becomes more difficult uh, in those kind of senses. And with climate change, that might make it more difficult as well. So then they might go to lab grown meats or artificial hydroponics and things like that for vegans. Uh, but then I was thinking, well, what if we, the sugar thing, because, you know, keeping people addicted. And I almost had in my this image in my head of like Wally, all these uh, people just, you know, so, so obese. And we're just absolute addicts to this thing. And we're, we're just part of this real horrendous cycle that we can't seem to break. We're perpetually unfit. We're perpetually unhealthy because, again, that makes a lot of money. Um, no doubt by then the UK healthcare system will be privatized and uh, they'll be making an absolute fortune from people being unwell. So yeah. I was thinking that, you know, could could we see some kind of super sugar, maybe genetic engineering, something that's unbelievably addicted, even more so. Uh, and we're just being fed, you know, absolute trash, which we know is no good for us, but it keeps us docile, obese, obedient. Well, if <laughs> Have I gone too about... dark? Have I gone too no, far? <laughs> no, but the thing is, <clears throat> that's already here because we have things like stevia. That is chemicals which is sweet they look guy literally accidentally made it and just nicked his his fingers and goes oh it's sweet 
hopefully it's not toxic. It was ever so slightly toxic, but mm-hmm. they keep making new synthetic sugars and mm-hmm. or getting but it so from far, different none, things. none that I know of are like as addictive as actual sugar from sugarcane, as far as but I know. Only because they, but only because they put less of it in. It's so sweet. It's so many uh... times sweeter that you have to put so little in. And it, you know, that's what Coke Zero is basically. That's why it's like zero calories, but it's still ridiculously sweet because it, it is just a chemical. And yeah, that is probably, you know, everything's really just chemicals. But uh, in, in when it comes to food, yes. I mean, the when you think about the what the the sort of and you go across the UK, you'll see yep. Um, during the during the during this summer, you'll see fields of oilseed rape. That is literally just to make oil that is then used in processed food. That is literally what its function is. It's an extremely productive pro- um, thing, but it's also what's allowed us to feed so many people on the planet because we can produce mm-hmm. a high calorie product from a relatively small landmass. And I mean, it is an interesting, it, it goes very much off the sort of what the world will be like. But I mean, in the what, 16th, 17th century, population was doubling, food production was only increasing linearly. Everyone was like, well, we're all, we're all, people are going to start to starve. We're 400 years later, uh, so, and people are not starving. In fact, more people die of overeating than undereating in the world now, which is a a crazy wow. thing to think so actually we get, we are very good at making food we're very good at feeding ourselves it's just at the expense of our health probably yeah. and the planet and that's you know where we we swim and and animal welfare as well that's how we've managed to do it by being quite brutal okay so speaking of brutal brutal question do you think it will be morality that shifts us as a human population onto a a more no. vegan path in a hundred years. No. no, but you do no, think be, that we would. It'll head be that economics. Way. It will be economics. It's the amount of land mass that it takes to grow the foods that we feed to cattle, and to to produce meat to eat is huge. And if you want to yeah. feed twelve billion people, we have a limited amount of land space available. So we're either going to have to stop growing food for cattle. Or we're going to have to start being a lot more efficient about growing food in a smaller spaces, and that's really where hydroponics comes in. Yeah. The Netherlands is a tiny country, and yet it produces a huge amount of food. It does that with hydroponics, so it is possible. It, mm. I mean, economics will be the thing that will eventually cause it if it's more economic. And the thing is, we're seeing veganism increasing. I mean, you know, Greg's has a vegan sausage roll. Uh, KFC has vegan chicken now because the, it, it the is, McDonald's uh, McPlant burger is actually very good. I've tried good. it. I, I was have, very have impressed. It, have it. But that's the thing. I mean, that, that the reason those products are now for sale is because it, there's an economic incentive to it. More people yeah. are becoming vegan. It's becoming more popular, but people don't want to give up on the things yeah, they like, think... which is Kentucky Fried Chicken. And it is, it's all yeah. going to be economics at the end of the day. Yeah, you, you mentioned before as well about feeding 12 billion people, and it will segue later into our little politics section. But I think that will be dependent on whether or not there's a political will across the world to feed 12 million people correctly. Because like you said, there is enough food in the world now. We could feed everyone sufficiently now, but there isn't the political will, and there's certainly not an economic model that would benefit those who are in power and owners of, of all this kind of immense wealth, is there? So. 
I I remember hearing a statistic from my geography teacher, and I have no idea where he got it from, so it could be complete and utter rubbish. But right. he was he made the claim that if we were to intensively farm like we do in Europe across the entire planet, we could feed about thirty seven billion people, give a, produce enough calories to feed that many people. I don't think that's a very nice world to live in. I don't think there's any nature left. It's all mm. just for human consumption, but it is plausible. It's possible. Again, I don't know where he got that figure from. If, I don't if anything, know. I think he's probably underestimating that. I reckon, I mean, if we, if you look at the amount of the land that we actually use for agriculture and how much is available and the way, presumably it's been a while since you've been at school technology has developed yeah. and so on oh, and yeah. with genetic engineering i reckon we could we could far outseed that um, but that again i'm at, i'm i'm really i'm just guessing now it it just well, feels yeah. like that's too light to me <laughs> and um, 37 billion people is a lot of people that's a that's a huge that's a much i mean we're like oh there'll be like 12 billion by in 100 years time that's still a third of what that we could do that's mm. and i don't know if how much of the ocean you could you could start harvesting and planting food in the oceans i don't know you mm. could do all sorts of stuff okay well should we should we segue into our environment we've touched on the environment and climate quite yep. quite a bit uh, already with with all that stuff so where do we think we'll be in 100 years in terms of our climate our environment and I think we can talk locally, but I think globally as well, uh, where are we going to be? I've got my first word I've got written down here and underlined is warmer, <laughs> warmer. Oh, um, yeah. I think without a shadow of a doubt, it's going to be warmer. Now, again, splitting this into utopia versus dystopia, uh, I th I would like to think that we do get our act together a little bit in terms of carbon emissions. And to be fair, in the UK over the last couple of years, I have felt quite optimistic that we are pushing much more in terms of towards electric and so on. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's not a fast enough rate for most people, but then, you know, for polit it's politics driven a lot of this and like you say, economics. So yeah. the fact that it is being pushed in that direction at all, I think says quite a lot. And, you know, it's it's like most things that once it starts going and starts snowballing, It'll get quicker and quicker and quicker. So, um, you know, I'm really pleased. Like one thing, as you know, I'm a teacher. And one thing I teach and I've been teaching for the last 14 years was about uh, the energy resources we use in the UK. And what's really interesting is over the last decade, we've gone from having majority coal as our UK uh, source of electricity. And that would account for something, something in the region of around 70 odd percent or something with most of our electricity yep. was coming from burning coal. We're now for a lot of a lot of the time on most days will be mostly renewable and the coal has dropped to a tiny percentage. The gas has gone up yeah. <laughs> um, and but you're always going to need something that's, you know, physical and there that can quickly take over. But the number of renewables has gone up massively wind, um, you know, on a on a mildly windy day, we are pretty much able in the uk to generate most of our electricity from from wind and and a little bit of solar as well so yep. i mean i would like to believe in our utopian world in 100 years that we really we keep pushing the way that we've been going and then you know once once a country has basically managed to master that and energy storage as well which is often the thing that's used as the uh and you know i won't name names but there are some politicians that absolutely 
do my head in because they talk about, oh, we can't store, we can't use renewables because there's no way of storing. There are ways of storing. <laughs> they're not fantastic. They're not amazing, but we can store. And even if we're storing and we only have, you know, a nuclear backup or something like that, there are ways to make it so that we are more or less 100% renewable all the time. So I would like to think, and I'll start off, I'll be the I'll be the optimist here. So I'd like to think that that's where we're heading in 100 years and electricity costs become absolute minimal. Um, we've got as much electricity as we could possibly need. Um, and what the heck, if we're in a utopian world, we're distributing it equally across the globe as well. We've got a global net going on. So everyone is kind of, it's almost a human right that we've got electricity met. Okay, rip it to shreds. <laughs> I can't. And okay, so here's the thing. Yeah. I work in the energy sector. So I have very strong opinions upon this. Mm -hmm. um, there are, when any politician goes, oh, well, you know, energy storage. Energy storage is not a concern for an amazing. So I've read a modeled study. And they say, yeah. not modeled, how we, the UK, could get to 100% renewables. So they mm -hmm. estimated you need to be at 85% wind, 15% solar. The UK is the windiest country in Europe. We would almost certainly be overgenerating and exporting quite a lot of energy for the majority of the year. Yeah. What was amazing to me is they also modelled energy storage, and they were like, you don't need to start really thinking about energy storage until you're at about 90% cut renewables, which is astonishing. Because then it's like, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you most of the time it's baseload power, Yes, okay, you've got peaks and troughs, but generally you're okay. Yeah. Energy storage, there's so many options of energy storage. Everyone talks about batteries. That's your short term. That's your peaks, second minutes sort of storage things. Yeah. Once you want to go to days and uh, months, then you start thinking about compressed air, pumping compressed air down, um, down underground or start compressing it in other ways. Highview Energy, who have built a pilot plant in Manchester of all places, oh, they yeah. are actually doing a, a pretty, it's in a pretty astonishing, the efficient compressed air storage. It's, it's compressing it down to a liquid, and then the heat as well. They're storing that in another way. It's really quite amazing what their, their efficiencies. Wow. And then, if you really want to store energy for a really long period of time, turn it into hydrogen. It, it's not the most efficient thing to do. But you're going to need it at some point. There are certain processes that are going to need high amounts of energy. The steel industry, for example, you can turn into hydrogen. That's possible. Or you just generate so much excess energy that, as you say, it becomes ridiculously cheap. Then the economics yeah. become a little bit tricky. But <clears> there are so many processes we could use excess energy for desalination for example or just yep. capturing carbon from the atmosphere direct air capture which is a technology which people talk about all the time capturing the co2 from the atmosphere mm -hmm. it needs a lot of energy because you know what co2 makes up like barely one percent of the air so yeah. you need to pump a lot of air through to capture that co2 if the energy is cheap you can do that it is absolutely not a problem so energy itself there's no problem with that. We can definitely, through renewables, generate enough energy. Um, it's the will and the way. Transmission of energy, I suspect, will always be a... Well, we need to get better at that because at the moment, um, for every 100 miles or something that you transmit energy, you lose a percentage of that energy. So that's why you can't, you can't just build a solar farm in the middle of the Sahara. 
and then send yeah. the energy around the world because you just lo- it'd just be too inefficient. Well, fun, and... fa- fun fact as well with uh, solar energy, you don't you wouldn't want to uh, because you you get a huge decrease in efficiency if it's too hot. So you know the best time to actually have solar panels going in the UK is funnily enough not in summer because in in bright sunshine it gets too hot reduces the efficiency it's actually spring and autumn when you get the most power up but I only learned that recently and I thought that was really interesting interesting. yeah yeah yeah, it's really interesting um so yeah because you you would assume it's going to be you know the bright of the sun brilliant but then you get loads of heating coming along with that and then that reduces uh, with photovoltaic cells that massively reduces the efficiency so Actually, these, the, you know, there is a good reason why they've not just got these massive, massive um, deserts just full. Uh, well, apart from issues with sand and so on, you've got you haven't got massive yeah. deserts full of these because they just become so inefficient. Um, so actually, it's probably not the best places to have them. Sorry, I interrupted you. I just had to throw that out there because it's something. No, no, I found that's, out. A, that's that is a fact that I I did not know. I I didn't know that they got less, so much less efficient. I mean, yeah. I can't remember what I was go- going to say. Um, Sorry, I stopped your flow there. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, your flow. you're talking about storage and yes, uh, I mean, how I, it's not I really think, an issue. I don't really feel like it. I mean, it is an issue. At some point, it will be an issue. Yeah. We will need to store that energy. Batteries, that that those those that's a bit of a problem because, of course, they've got rare earths and we have to mine and that's probably not great for the yeah. environment and all the rest of it and the processing time and we need to get a lot better at recycling that's a big thing that we you know, yeah. you know when we talk about the climate we use so much new material and everything we build um you know a wind turbine is great but it probably only has a lifetime of about 30 years and then what do you do with that wind turbine then if he's just shoving it into a skip and building another one it's not really that much better for the environment um, yeah, this, this seen... was, again this was something sorry again to interrupt you there yeah. but talking about re- uh, reusability uh, i was watching some i cannot remember now but it was about solar panels again and so obviously one of the issues with solar panels is they need rare earth elements um i think you need things like silicon in there which is quite expensive yeah and, and other things and the problem is once they've kind of reached the end of their life it, they're really difficult to recycle and reuse so you've got obviously the components and i i was thinking why why have we not come across this ages and ages ago and decided we'll all as a kind of global community agree to this why don't we almost have things that are like lego brick you know click click and connect like everything we build whenever we build things we build, it doesn't matter if it's a skyscraper, a solar panel, if we're using a certain metal, we have a certain shape connector that can disconnect again, something that can be melted down. And anyway, getting back to the solar panels, they were talking about using something like aluminium as an alternative material, uh, as one of the metals in the photovoltaic cells. And even though it is less efficient at doing its job, it can be recycled. And then it makes solar panels 100% recyclable. And so you can just reuse them, remake them, and I thought things like that, and these things, if people think about it, rather than just going, oh, solar panels, here we go, oh, get, get them out there, get them out there, go, go, go. And then suddenly 30 years down the line, we go, right, they're all old and knackered and inefficient and we need to replace them. And now we've got a huge problem because we're going to have to dig up a load of rare earth metals again. And yeah, we can't really, with any kind of energy efficiency, recycle this stuff. So I think things, like you say, recycling and getting better at that is massive it's i mean there are some very smart people out there in the world like who are working on stuff like this uh batteries are are really weird i mean the 
I forget the guy's name, you possibly know, who, mm. who invented the lithium-ion battery. I mean, he's still working on battery technology. I think he's over 100 now, but he is still working <laughs> on it. And, good uh, on him. Good on him. I mean, I think he's got a lot of PhDs and professors that work for him, but he's kind of the head honcho. And I mean, he's working on silicon oxide batteries. Uh, there's form energy. They have iron oxide batteries. That's literally just using electricity to um, deoxidize iron. And it's just that's all. It's not as efficient necessarily as maybe lithium ion. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because it's that little bit more. It's a it's a more common metal. And, yeah. you know, you build a huge battery storage facility for that. And OK, maybe it doesn't store quite as much electricity, but it stores enough that it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And if you and can make, if put you can make car, if you can make 10 times as many of them, then, you know, exactly. it doesn't matter. It's half as efficient because it's not an issue then is it yeah um, okay so like focusing back on on the 100 years then because we've we've deviated onto <laughs> lithium ion technology and, and solar yeah. panels for some reason yeah. um so do we do we think it's not going to be this scorched earth judge dread-esque cursed earth or do we do we think we are that in 100 years that we are going to be able to pull it back no um, <laughs> with all, all what we've been saying no, no 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 so the problem is that the climate is not immediately responsive we yeah. if we make changes now it doesn't matter the the, the planet will warm it's going to continue to warm up it yeah. will be hotter in you know uh 2123 than it is in uh 2023 it just yeah. will be there's nothing you know that the co2 is in the atmosphere it's already trapping heat Nothing we do, unless we start really pulling huge amounts of CO2 out of, of the atmosphere, and even then, it's going to be a delayed response. We, if we do the right things now, we might, you know, in 200, 300, 400 years, maybe we'll start to see the, 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 the temperatures drop. We won't get to see that, but the decisions we make will help future generations. So I think that's the, that's the thing. Which when you've got that, when you've got politicians in for f four four years eight years and yeah, so on, it, it is that really what they're thinking about in a hundred years? No, absolutely not. What they're thinking about is let's we need we need to make energy more affordable. Mm. And the funny fact of the matter is that uh, renewables are more affordable. They are yeah. way more economic at this point, and that's one of the reasons really that and the fact that we don't want to be reliant upon Russian gas or oil from Saudi Arabia or things mm -hmm. like that, um, why renewables are kind of taking off because there's suddenly this realisation that actually energy security is hugely important for the stability uh, of the of your economy. And then you need, and the best way to do that is to generate the energy locally and renewables is the best way to do that unless you have oil or gas really, really nearby. And then that will eventually run out or will become no longer economic to extract. So do do you think, are we going to hit one of these cliff edges? Because what people I think don't seem, or a lot of people I talk to and, you know, they go, oh, a couple of degrees. Why have we got to worry about that? You know, I, I like it. I like the number of times I've heard people say, oh, I like, I like the warm. It's much better than being cold. I was like, well, you're clearly not understood what all this is about. Um, do you think we're going to hit one of these cliff edges? For example, um, something people probably might realize or might not realize is, you know, the the amount of CO2 that you can dissolve in seawater 
uh, as you raise the temperature becomes less. So yeah. as the temperature of the of the earth rises on average, what you will see is massive. And I'm, you know, we're talking gigatons of CO2 being released from the ocean, which is currently trapped there, which in turn accelerates the increase in temperature, which in turn yeah. accelerates more a larger release of CO2 from the oceans, which in turn is going to mean that plants are going to die because they're not going to be able to cope with the massive sudden changes. And it just, and we, what we see is this massive exponential spike. And that's, that's what the scientists I think are really terrified of is that we hit this point. And the problem with that is once we hit that point, we can't go back. Like there is, there is no way we would be able to generate all the technologies we're talking about now are gentle touch technologies. What we would need next level civilization. You know, we would have had to have conquered the stars, the power of the stars in order to have enough energy to turn back a planet's ecosystem that is in rapid decline like that. And I think when you look at planets like uh, Venus, uh, which is basically where we will end up. I mean, we've got, yeah. we are so similar in the term, in terms of uh, how we're set up as planets and Venus is, is a hellscape. It's, it's just a nightmare and in terms of how, uh, you know, the, the acid rain that's got from the sky that melt, melt your face off, pressures are huge, but the amount of CO2, it's got a greenhouse effect, which is just off the scale, something we can't even imagine. And that's where we're headed. And I think something I saw, I think it was on Netflix, actually, a documentary saying that, and I think it was another, I can't quite remember, it was something big, but not as big as you'd think, like 10 degrees, if we see like a 10 degree rise, will have no more clouds because clouds yeah. require a temperature to dip in order to make the moisture um, condense and then it rains and so on. So, I mean, that scares me more than anything, I think, to think there might be a day where on Earth we see the last cloud, which of course means we've got not, we've got a lot less to reflect the sunlight. Global warming could increase again because we've lost our cloud cover. It's just... It's just like an absolute nightmare scenario. So I think my my fear is, like you say, it, these are things that we do now. They'll have an impact in 100, 200 years. My my fear is that we don't do anything. We only start trying to pull together. And very much like uh, the student who tells you the week before the exam, he's going to start revising. It's too little, too late. It's too <laughs> little, too late. You can't yeah. at the last minute try and pull it together. And as much, you know, with the best will in the world, even if we if we achieve world peace, we're not going to be able to do it if we've reached one of these cliff edges. And unfortunately, I just don't think as a global population, we would be able to work together at that level that's required until we saw a cliff edge like that. Because like you said, it's something that's we don't see the impacts for a lot later down the line. No. I think by the time the impact kicks in we've missed the boat. So, I mean, on this one, I mean, I agree with you on the food one. I think it would probably are because of economics and so on pushing that way in terms of climate. I don't think we would have seen the effects, but I think we would have gone past that tipping point in a hundred years. I, I reckon we will almost certainly have gone past the 1.5. I, I just, I mean, at this point in time, no, there's no country in the world that is doing enough. And I mean, like, yeah, a lot of people will point um, fingers at countries like China 
and India. Uh, but what I like to point out is, OK, yeah, China does have a bit. India is actually the, is, is ranked as number three and doing the most about climate change. <laughs> you don't that hear that one very often, do you? You do not hear that one very often. I can't remember where I read read that, but it was like it's basically like Sweden, Finland, India, and I'm like, what? they are putting a huge amount of effort into electric, uh, into renewable uh, solar and wind, and apparently it is making a big effect. And they are planting a lot of trees, and they are doing what they can, and big public transport things, really investing in ways to sort of make sure that they can keep their pollution down mm. much more than the like the uk we're doing we're doing a, a reasonably not a good enough job but we're doing an okay job but we're way behind some other countries which are often are getting blamed but actually they're doing a lot more to try and resolve this but you're right there is a there, there's got to be a political way a will to do it and we could go we could go over that thing i mean it's not like it hasn't on this planet happened before. There was hot house Earth. The planet basically almost became too hot to live on. The Permian mass extinction, which was caused by a supervolcano, 95% of life went extinct. And that was because that put so much CO2 into the atmosphere, it literally started heating the planet up and everything pretty much died. It could happen. It could happen. And, and then, I think you know, I think one of the one of the things that um a lot of these environmentalists miss is that we're not trying to save the planet. The planet will always be here and life will always yeah. be here. We're trying to save humans <laughs> because yeah. the way, the environment in which we have evolved to live is going to change drastically. And with all our technology, I mean, the best we'll probably manage is to live underground in little horrible little domes or something. We are not yeah. going to be living in any kind of free, wonderful world. It 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 would be some crazed dystopian nightmare, really. Yeah. So, wow, that was I mean, positive. <laughs> that was positive. I mean, you know, estimates climate change. You know, it could kill three billion people, easy. Like that's mm -hmm. just, you know, just starvation, famines. And I floods. imagine that's the relative short term. We're talking decades here, rather term. than yeah, yeah, yeah. Like not you not not in hundreds of years. I mean, we're already seeing migrants crises around the world yep. because people are escaping from wars and some of those wars when you actually look at their base you could argue they're the first climate change wars there's been yep. droughts that's put pressure on the government the government's not dealt with it civil unrest suddenly the country goes into civil war and suddenly you know you've got you've got migrants uh yep. fleeing we, we, we will see climate climate refugees will be the biggest uh, refugee group i think in the next hundred years for sure yeah absolutely if, okay. if, 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 if not's already happened already right mark we've actually been waffling on for so long uh, i think we've probably reached the end of our usual kind of time allocation that we give ourselves so i think this could be the first hopefully of many of, of a two-parter i think we've turned this into a two-parter so that I, I believe that's part one of what will the world be like in a hundred years yeah. Should we stop there? Well, yeah, I guess we should stop there. So this has been Philosophical Tendencies, where two humble gentlemen try their best to understand the universe one question at a time. I've been Mark. And I've been Tom. Good Goodbye. Night.